Chapter Thirteen of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Indications. These concluding words of Sam Underhill show the trend of public opinion at this time. But I was not swayed by the general prejudice, nor to all appearance were the police. Though enough poison was found in Mr. Gillespie's remains to have caused the death of any ordinary man in fifteen minutes, no arrests were made, nor was Mr. Gillespie's favorite son subjected to any closer surveillance than the other members of this once highly respected family. Meanwhile, the papers were filled with gossip about the case, which was now openly regarded as one of murder. In one column I read a semi-humorous, semi-serious account of how George Gillespie actually once won a bet in face of all odds, and to the confounding of those who trusted in his invariable ill-luck. And in another how Leighton had worn out his father's patience by a most persistent association with the most degraded classes, an association which led him into all sorts of extravagances. As a sample of these, and to show how entirely his follies differed from those of his elder brother, he has been known to order breakfast at a restaurant and disappear in the wake of a Salvation Army procession before the meal could be served. They never knew at home when to expect him in, or at what moment he might leave the family circle. He was so restless, he rarely sat an evening out in any one place. Without any apparent reason, he would often leave in the midst of a concert, sermon, or lecture, and has been known more than once to dash away from a theatrical performance as if his life depended upon his reaching the open air. And he never expected to be criticized or questioned. If he were, he found some apology to suit the occasion. But the apology was forced, and the person who called it forth rarely repeated the offense. Only a small paragraph was devoted to Alfred. In it, his temporary engagement to Miss Saxton of Baltimore was mentioned, and a somewhat cruel account given of the way he jilted this young lady on his return to the city. As this was coincident with the arrival of Hope at her uncle's house, I needed no further explanation of his fickleness. All this gossip about people, in whom I had come to take so deep an interest, both worried and unsettled me, and I found myself looking forward with mingled dread and expectation to the public inquiry, which I had every reason to hope would separate some of these threads, in the network of which my own heart had become so unfortunately entangled. It had been called for Thursday, and when that day came I was one of the first to appear upon the scene. Not a word of what passed escaped me, not a look nor a sign. Miss Meredith, who entered on the arm of Leighton, wore a veil thick enough to conceal her features. But I did not need to pierce that veil to imagine the expression of anxiety and distress she thus concealed from the crowd. George, who had resumed his usual manner, sat conspicuous in height and good looks among a group of witnesses, some of whom I knew and some not. Dr. Bennett sat at my side, and had so little to say that I did not attempt to disturb him, having respect for the grief with which he regarded the untimely end of his lifelong friend and patient. The first witness was myself. 
as my testimony contained nothing which has not been already very fully related in these pages i will pass over this portion of the scene with the single remark that in the course of my whole examination which was a lengthy and exhaustive one i allowed no expression to escape me likely to prejudice the minds of those about me against any one of mr gillespie's sons for it was apparent before i had been upon the stand ten minutes that an effort was being made to fix the crime on alfred and what surety could i have that this result would not plunge a barbed arrow into the breast of her about whom my fancy had drawn its magic circle as i sat down i glanced her way and it seemed to me there was meaning in the slight acknowledgment she made me with her ungloved hand but what meaning the inquiry thus being opened, and curiosity roused as to the motive which led Mr. Gillespie to summon a stranger to his side, at a moment so vital and under circumstances seemingly calling for the ministrations of those nearest and dearest to him, various experts and physicians were called to prove that his death had not been caused by disease, but by the action of prussic acid on a sufficiently healthy system. With the establishment of this fact, the morning's inquiry closed. As Miss Meredith was likely to be the first witness called at the afternoon session, I felt it was my duty as her lawyer to approach her at this time with the following question, quite customary under the circumstances. Miss Meredith, said I, you will probably soon be subjected to a searching inquiry by the coroner. May I ask if there is any special point or topic concerning which you would prefer to keep silence? If so, I can insist upon your privilege. The look of mingled surprise and indignation with which she regarded me was a sufficient answer in itself. Yet she chose to say, and say coldly, after a moment of reflection, I have nothing to conceal. He can ask no question I shall not be perfectly willing to answer. Abashed by the construction she had put upon my words, as well as greatly hurt by her manner, I bowed and drew off. Evidently she had felt her candor impugned and her innocence questioned, and in her ignorance of legal proceedings thought she had only to speak the truth to sustain herself in my eyes and in those of the crowd assembled to hear her. This sort of self-confidence is common in witnesses, especially in such as are more conscious of their integrity than of the pitfalls underlying the simplest inquiry. And however much I might deplore her short-sightedness and wish that she had better understood both myself and her own position, it was plain that in the light of what had just passed between us, all interference on my part would be regarded by her as an insult and that I would be expected to keep silence under all circumstances, let the consequences be what they would. It was an outlook far from agreeable, either for the lawyer or lover, and the recess which now ensued was passed by me in a state of dread of which she, in her inexperience, had little idea. Upon the reseating of the jury, her name, just as I had anticipated, was the first one called. The emotions with which I saw her rise and throw aside her veil under the concentrated gaze of the unsympathetic crowd, convened to hear her testimony, first revealed to me the absoluteness of her hold upon me, and when I heard the buzz of admiration which followed the disclosure of her features, 
I was conscious of coloring so deeply that I feared my secret would become the common property of the crowd. But the spell created by her beauty still held, and all regards remained fixed upon her countenance, now eloquent with feelings which, for the moment, were shared by all who looked upon her. Her voice, when she spoke, deepened the effect of her presence. It was of that fine and resonant quality which awakens an echo in all sensitive hearts and carries conviction with it even to the most callous and prejudiced. It lost some of its power, perhaps, as the ear became accustomed to it. But to the very end of her testimony I noted here and there persons who looked up every time she spoke, as if some inner chord responded to her tones tones which, more than her face, conveyed the impression of a nature exceedingly deep and exquisitely sensitive. She, meantime, failed to realize the effect which her appearance had produced. She had been questioned, and was striving earnestly and conscientiously to do justice to her oath, and relate as circumstantially as possible what she knew of her uncle's sudden death. This is what I heard her say. I was my uncle's typewriter. I assisted him often with his correspondence, and was accustomed to go in and out of his study as if it were my own room. On this night I had written several letters for him, and being tired had gone upstairs for a little rest. But I was too anxious to be of assistance to him. His mail that evening was unusually large, to retire without one more effort to relieve him. So I went down again a little after ten. I had heard steps in the hall a few minutes before, and little Claire's voice somewhere about the house, but I did not encounter any one in going down, perhaps because I went by the way of the rear stairs, as I often do when I am in a hurry. Little, little did I imagine what was before me. When I reached my uncle's door, but you know what a terrible sight met me. There lay my kind, my good. We all waited our hearts in our mouths, but in a moment more she choked down her emotion and was ready to go on. He was dead. I knew it at first glance, yet I raised no cry. I could not. I seemed in an instant to have become marble. I saw him lying at my feet and did not weep a tear. I did not even touch him. I merely staggered to the table at the side of which he had fallen, and mechanically, but with a stoppage of my heart's action, which made the instant one of untold horror to me, lifted the carriage of the typewriter which he had evidently been using when struck with death, and looked to see what his last words had been. I had reason for believing that they would convey some warning to me, or at least an explanation of his sudden death, and they did or so I interpreted the isolated phrase I came upon at the end of the unfinished letter I found there. God knows I may have been mistaken as to what those five words meant, but I was so impressed with the belief that they were added there for my personal enlightenment, that I reeled under the responsibility thus forced upon me, and hardly conscious of what I was doing, tore off, with almost criminal haste, the portion containing these words— and fled with them out of the sight and reach of every one in the house. It was a mad thing to do, and I speedily regretted the insane impulse which had actuated me, for I was very soon discovered in the remote spot to which I had fled, and the piece of paper was found, and, 
and how could she be expected to go on have we that piece of paper here asked the coroner it was produced identified and passed down to the jury it was my opinion at the time and is still that she told her story thus fully in order to elude the questions which any apparent reticence on her part would assuredly have evoked but having reached this point it seemed impossible for her to go further she drooped not under the eyes of the crowd but under the fixed gaze of her three cousins had she hoped for some signs of sympathy from them which she failed to receive or at least a partial recognition on their part of the suffering she was undergoing in the cause of truth and justice if so no such recognition came george's fine face showed anger and anger only Leighton's a cold impassibility which might have passed for the stolidity of an utterly unfeeling man if his hands had not betrayed his inner restlessness and torment while alfred's flashing eye and set lips made plain the fact that his emotions clung to his own position rather than to hers as was natural perhaps with that slip of paper going the rounds of the jury and calling up from that respectable body startled uneasy or menacing looks according to the nature of the man examining it you remember that slip a business communication broken into by these totally irrelevant words one of my sons he is it any wonder that these twelve commonplace men keenly felt their position in face of what looked like a direct accusation from the father's hand yet as these five words simple in themselves and gaining meaning only from the effort which this young girl had made to suppress them were capable of being construed in a hundred different ways the faces which at first blush mirrored but one thought gradually assumed a non-committal aspect which would have been more encouraging to the men thus compromised if the facts still to be brought out in explanation of miss meredith's conduct towards them had not been so damaging a character hope who surmised if she did not know the contents of the letter she now heard rustling in the coroner's hand awaited his next question with evident perturbation alfred who may have hoped that this letter would not appear so early in the examination forgot himself for a moment and cast a look at his brothers which they took pains to ignore perhaps because of the effort it cost them to preserve their own countenances in face of the impending ordeal i was witness both to this appeal and its rebuff but to all appearance dr frisbee saw neither he was deciding with what form of words to introduce his new subject miss meredith he said at last you will now take this letter in your hand have you ever seen it before yes sir it was a letter which was entrusted to me by my uncle and which i was told to preserve in secrecy so long as he retained his health and life it is addressed as all may see to my three sons george leighton and alfred gillespie miss meredith did you understand by these words that the enclosed was intended equally for your three cousins yes sir my uncle archibald told me so he expressly said in giving it into my charge that in the event of his sudden or unexplainable death his three sons were to read this letter together it has been opened i see is that a sign it has been so delivered and read 
Yes, sir. When on the night I made that inconsiderate attempt to suppress the slip of paper on which my uncle had transcribed the five words you have just shown to the jury, one of my cousins reproached me with having drawn erroneous and unwarrantable conclusions from what was there written. I justified myself by handing over this letter, though I was never shown its contents. I was well aware of the circumstances under which it was written, and I was certain it would prove my best excuse for what would otherwise have seemed monstrous in one who— She was too disturbed to proceed. The coroner looked at her kindly, but it was no part of his duty to allow any sympathy he might feel for the witness to interfere with his endeavor to reach the truth. He therefore urged her to relate the circumstances to which she alluded. In other words, to explain how this letter addressed collectively to her three cousins came to be written. She grew still more distressed. Does not the letter explain itself? she remonstrated. Spare me, I pray. My uncle's sons have been brothers to me. Do not make me repeat what passed between my uncle and myself on that unhappy morning, when he first unburdened himself of his intolerable grief. "'I fear that I cannot spare you,' replied the coroner. "'But I will grant you a short respite while this letter, or such portions of it as bear upon Mr. Gillespie's death, is being read to the jury. Gentlemen, it is written in Mr. Gillespie's own hand, and it is dated just a month prior to his unhappy demise. Miss Meredith, you may sit.' She fell, rather than sank into the chair offered her and for a moment I felt myself the prey of a boundless indignation as I witnessed the callousness shown towards her, by the three men who up to this time had presumably regarded her with more or less affection. To me her position called for their especial sympathy. The heroism she evinced was the heroism of a loving woman who sacrifices herself and what is dearest to her, to her idea of justice and law. And while such action may be easy for a man, it is hard beyond expression for a woman, who, as we know, is much more apt to listen to the voice of her heart than to any abstract appeal of right and justice. Yet these same relatives of hers sat still and scarcely looked her way, though she glanced repeatedly and with heart-rending appeal in their direction. I am quite ready to admit that I was too prejudiced a witness to be just to these men. Had I not myself been under the influence of a sudden and violent passion, I would have seen that Alfred needed sympathy as well as she, for Alfred was the man most menaced by the contents of the letter now on the point of being read, and he knew this as certainly as she did. As this letter is better known to you than it was to me up to this hour, I leave you to judge of its effects upon the jury and the excited crowd of spectators thronging the room at every point. Heads which had wagged in doubt now drooped in heaviest depression, and while all eyes seemed to shrink from an attempt to read the three white faces on the witness's bench, the attention of all was concentrated there, and it was with quite a sense of shock that Dr. Frisbee's voice was heard rising again in renewed examination of the young lady whose precipitate action had brought the public notice this touching letter of a heartbroken father. His first question was a leading one. 
Had Mr. Gillespie followed up his former confidences by any further allusions to the attempt which had been made upon his life? Her answer was a direct negative, though she had detected in her uncle signs of great unhappiness. He had held no further conversations with her on this topic, and life had gone on as usual in the great house. But he talked of poisons and refused to take any more of the medicine which came so near killing him? Uncle Archibald took no more of this medicine, certainly. That is, I saw no more of it in the house. But he never talked of poisons, that is, publicly or in my presence. Not at the table? Not after that night, sir. He had before? Only incidentally. He had laughed at some of Dr. Bennett's remarks, and once I heard him mention the danger of taking an overdose of the remedy that was doing him so much good. It was while jesting with me upon my refusal to allow anyone else to portion it out for him. That was your duty, then? Assuredly. Were you in the habit of preparing his glass when alone, or in the presence of his sons? As it happens, sir, I had but one dread, that of miscounting the drops. And he took no more of this medicine after that especial night? No, sir. He asked Dr. Bennett for a narcotic of less dangerous properties, and was given chloral. Did you hear any remarks made on this change? None. What became of the phial which held the remainder of this medicine marked poison? I emptied it out at my uncle's request. You were your uncle's nurse, then, typewriter and friend. He trusted me, sir, in all these capacities. Did he trust you with his business concerns? Not at all. I merely wrote letters to his dictation. Did you know, or have you ever heard, the value of his estate? I have never even asked myself whether he counted his fortune by thousands or millions. The dignity, the simplicity with which this was said, made it an impressive termination to a very painful examination. As I noted the effect it produced, I was in hopes that she would be allowed to retire for the day, but the coroner had other views. With a hesitancy that more or less prepared us for what was to come, he addressed her again, saying quietly, I have spared you a public reading of certain portions of your uncle's letter, referring to yourself and the wishes he openly cherished in your behalf. In return, will you inform me if you are engaged to marry any of these young men? The thrill the start given to the witness's bench by this pointed question communicated itself to officer and spectator. In George's fiery flush and Alfred's sudden paleness, emotions could be seen at work of sufficient significance to draw every eye, though few present, I dare say, ascribe these emotions to their rightful sources. To myself, Divided as I was in feeling between the anxiety I could not but feel as her lawyer, to see her parry a question too personal not to be humiliating, and the interest with which, as her lover, I awaited a response which would solve my own doubts and make clear my own position, there was something in the attitude of both these men strongly suggestive of a like uncertainty. Were her feelings then as much of a mystery to them as they were to me? Did George fear to hear her say she was engaged to Alfred, and Alfred dread to hear her admit that she was irrevocably pledged to George? 
If so, what a situation had been evolved by this question publicly put by a city functionary. No wonder the young girl dropped her eyes before venturing a reply. But the spirit of self-protection, always greater in woman than in man, where heart secrets are involved, gave her strength to meet this crisis with a baffling serenity. Raising her patient eyes, she replied with a sweet composure which acted like a tonic upon the agitated hearts about her. There is no such engagement. I have lived in their house like a sister. Their father was my mother's brother. Another man than Coroner Frisbee would have let her go, but this honest, if kindly official was strangely tenacious when he had a point to gain. Flushing himself, for her look was directed quite steadily upon him, he gravely repeated, "'Do you mean to say that no words of love ever passed between you and any of these gentlemen?' This was too much. Expecting to see her recoil, possibly break down, I eagerly looked her way for the permission to interfere, which she might now be ready to give me. But with a proud lift of her head, she showed herself equal to the emergency, and her answer, given simply and with no attempt at subterfuge, restored her at once to the dignified position we all dreaded to see her lose. I mean to say nothing but the truth. Mr. George Gillespie has more than once honored me by making me an offer of his hand, but I did not consider myself in a position to accept it. Dr. Frisbee showed her no quarter. And your cousin Alfred? Alfred? Her eyes no longer met those of the coroner or anyone else in that cruel crowd. He, she stammered proudly, has never interfered with whatever claims his brother may have been supposed to have upon my favor. It was a statement to awaken turmoil in more than one of the uneasy hearts behind her. George bounded to his feet, though he quickly subsided again into his seat, ashamed of this betrayal, or fearful of the effect it might have upon his brother. Alfred, on the contrary, sat still, but the bitterness visible in his smile spoke volumes, and seeing it, the whole crowd recognized what had long been apparent to himself, that these two brothers were rivals in the love they bore this woman and that it was through her desire to shield the one she favored that she made the first false move which had drawn the attention of the police to the doubtful position held by Mr. Gillespie's sons. That her choice had fallen upon the man who had not interfered with his brother's rights seemed only too probable, and I expected the coroner to force this acknowledgment from her lips but he grew considerate all at once, and inquired instead if Mr. Gillespie had been made aware of his elder son's wishes. She replied to this by saying, They were no secret in the house, and with a look begged him to spare her. But this man was inexorable. And did he approve of the match? He did. Yet you failed to engage yourself. This she deemed already answered. If the younger brother had pressed his suit for your hand, do you think that under the circumstances your uncle would have sanctioned such rivalry? This perhaps she could not answer. At all events, she was as silent as before. Miss Meredith, proceeded her tormentor, utterly oblivious or entirely careless of the suffering he caused her. 
Do you know whether your uncle and his youngest son ever had any words on this subject? Her hands involuntarily flew out in piteous entreaty. Ask this question of the only person who can answer it, she cried. I only know that I have been treated with great respect in the house of my uncle. With that, the proceedings closed for the day. End of chapter 13